Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Bromowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We talk about the lack of coherence in markets. We're seeing that across the board at a time when America's cities are dealing with the unrest, the likes of which we have not seen since the late 1960s. We also see split fates among corporate America with the haves and the have-nots, the haves being able to borrow virtually for free and the have-nots going bankrupt. Joining us right now is Molly Smith, a corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. The latest, Amazon.com, borrowing money basically for free for three <laughs> years. I mean, really, I'm paying uh, what uh, 20 basis points above treasuries to borrow this uh, amount of money. Molly, what do we know so far about this amount? So this is Amazon actually set a few records yesterday, not just on the three-year, also for 7, 10, and 40-year debt, uh, that these premiums are just, I mean, I, I feel weird calling it a premium. There's hardly one <laughs> of any there. Uh, this is more or less... Uh, a treasury bond, or perhaps even less in some cases. Uh, so it's uh, it's pretty impressive to see how Amazon was able to do this yesterday. But again, like you said, Lisa, just really speaks to the divide in the market right now that Amazon can virtual can borrow for basically nothing, while you know there are so many companies that don't have any bond market access at all right now. So Molly, I'm, you have a great chart in your article, kind of looking at the uh, high-grade borrowing costs, and it's almost back to where it was pre-pandemic. Is this just simply the market saying, you know, the Federal Reserve has our back here? Very much so. Yes, we can thank the Fed for uh, not only the rally here in spreads, which is a reflection of the demand in the secondary market, but also for all the issuance we've seen in the primary market. That last week we hit the one trillion dollar. Uh, annual issuance mark, uh, the fastest rate ever. Last year, we didn't get through that until November. So uh, the Fed has been there uh, for both supply and demand, and it's really just opened up a ton of issuance and this massive rally. So the trillion dollars uh, that investment-grade corporate uh, corporations have borrowed in the first couple of months of the year, I'm wondering what people think. Is this to continue, or is this just basically the largest, best-capitalized companies creating war stashes of cash just in case things deteriorate? So it's a lot of that. A lot of companies, like you said, capitalizing on these low interest rates. It's also been a lot of companies that genuinely do need the money and are still investment grade rated like Carnival and Marriott, um, hardly a borrower of an Amazon kind of status, but nonetheless are still rated investment grade and that they've come to the market as well. But uh, most strategists are seeing that this is going to slow down a lot in the second half of the year, that so much of what we've seen has largely been pulled forward from what would have been uh, in the second half of the year. So we're probably going to see issuance slow down some say at Bank of America, maybe even just $200 billion of issuance in the last six months of 2020. So Molly, in terms of use of proceeds, are most companies here refinancing existing debt or are they just, as Lisa was suggesting, you know, taking down debt, uh, bolstering up, putting cash on their balance sheet here? It's a little bit of both. Uh, so we've seen a ton of companies uh, do uh, liability management exercises in, uh, in tandem with these bond offerings. So they'll issue new debt uh, hopefully, and use those proceeds to take out uh, debt that's coming up in uh, in new in uh, upcoming years. So we've seen a lot of those 
uh, concurrent bond offerings and tender offers together. But then there are a lot of companies, like you said, Paul, that are just, they need the money and they're just trying to pad the war chest now and uh, who knows what's in front of us. So it's a combination of both. Molly, the last time Amazon.com borrowed money was ahead of their acquisition of Whole Foods. Now they're raising $10 billion at a time when they don't exactly need a ton of cash. It's not as if their business model is struggling right now. Do we have any idea of whether they're planning another acquisition? Uh, it, they could be. And I believe that's what uh, our analysts at Bloomberg Intelligence uh, speculate could be something that they're thinking about. Uh, Amazon also did borrow in 2018 in um, a smaller offering than this one. But like you said, yes, they've been a pretty infrequent borrower. And the one that's really of note was for the Whole Foods acquisition. So Mm. it's hard to tell beyond what they said is just general corporate purposes as far as what this $10 billion may be used for. So Molly, how far, how broad is this, uh, you know, kind of uh, rally in the bond market and new, new issuance market going down in terms of credit quality. We're seeing a lot of investment grade issues, issuance. Where does it kind of get dicey here for an issuer? So the high yield market has definitely been open to some of those cuspier borrowers, like you said. Even just today, we're seeing some like uh, MGM, uh, which is uh, actually just the REIT connected to the casinos, is borrowing in the high yield market. We also have Citgo, the U.S. refinery unit of Pitavesa. So, and outside of that, just more largely, we've seen a lot of issuance from hotels, casinos, a lot in the travel and leisure sector more broadly that really speaks to those sectors that um, that need the cash right now. They're not looking to refinance debt. They just need the money wherever they can get it from. Although, let's be clear, some of the lower rated borrowers aren't exactly getting the best deals in the world. It's not like they're borrowing for free, right? I mean, we've seen them pledge islands. We've seen them uh, (laughs) pledge uh, cruise ships. We've seen them pledge, you know, the clothes in their closet. I I mean, at a certain point, their ability to borrow isn't necessarily testament to a great desire for their debt, correct? Correct. You know, and that's a great point, Lisa. And yeah, and that's even, and that's what's more remarkable, like you said, is that these are secured offerings. So there is some physical collateral protection, um, you know, like an island in the case of Norwegian. Uh, but like you said, most of these deals, they're coming at double digit interest rates. We've seen some, I think off the top of my head, up to 14% yields on some of these, uh, which was, I believe that was Landry's, which is the operator of a casino and restaurant empire. So uh, we've seen well into the double digit interest rates. And like you said, these are hardly coming for free for some of the more challenged companies. Molly Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Molly Smith is a corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News, bringing us up to date on what has just been an extraordinary new issue market, uh, particularly in the investment grade market, Lisa, year to day, hitting that trillion dollar mark, uh, the earliest on record uh, just recently. So again, if you need cash and your investment grade uh, rated, uh, boy, now is the time. Yeah, I can just already hear people saying brr, like the the cash printing machine that the Federal Reserve is making. I mean, that's essentially uh, what a lot of people are attributing this to, given how much the Fed's action stepping in, uh, saying that they're going to buy corporate debt for the first time in its history, uh, pushing down yields considerably near their all-time lows now for investment-grade companies. Still, however, the question in my mind is, at what point do investors start to price in the fact that the Fed's actions will not prevent certain companies from going bankrupt. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at just the 10-year yield on the treasuries right now, the it's down 3.30 seconds, pushing the yield up just slightly to uh, 0.6%. 
let's call it 0.67% on the 10-year uh, treasury, just extraordinary. We have been wondering about the disparities that we have been seeing in the job market with some of the job losses in the wake of the coronavirus hammering the Black and Latino communities disproportionately. This just has come to the fore as the unrest in America's cities gets uh, harder and harder to combat. Joining us right now is John Stroyer, Chief Executive Officer of Calvert Research and Management. I want to know from your perspective, you say that ending racism is the responsibility of corporations. Why do you say that? Thanks for having me on. And and certainly we've um, given corporations a significant amount of power in the United States. They inform innumerable social and environmental outcomes. So as a result of having that power, which has been something they've acquired over time, they have a responsibility to help solve these types of issues. Additionally, their ability to take action and to drive positive social change is a significant driver for their brand value and their attractiveness and reputation as a provider of products and services, as also as an employer. So they have that responsibility, they've taken it, and they've got to take action to help solve this. John, how about the counter argument that the responsibility of a company is to maximize shareholder profits? Well, I think there's a tie-in here because in a society that is destabilized as a result of civil unrest, which is an outcome of excessive inequality, GDP is suboptimal. So I do think that companies working to solve this problem will be able to see a benefit to long-term value creation. I don't really think there's a conflict here. Although markets may disagree, and I'm thinking of Facebook and Twitter in particular, and not necessarily on the racism question, but certainly on interfering and sort of making a judgment call when it comes to how people are using their platforms. Facebook erred on the side of not really interfering, and Twitter has slapped a number of labels with warnings on it for a number of different leaders recently, including President Trump. How can this not necessarily be what we're looking at longer term in terms of the benefit and detractions and interfering? Because right now it seems like Facebook has won and Twitter has lost. Well, certainly in the short term, anything can happen with with security prices. Um, What we think about is long-term value creation and what happens over a slightly longer time period. And I think it also extends well beyond social media. Um, to companies that are doing business in, in, in every community. And I'm, I'm not sure that you know, Twitter has won or lost or Facebook has won or lost. It's way too soon to tell. So, John, this uh, discussion, your argument per se, seems to fit into the ESG kind of discussion, environmental, social, and governance that a lot more investors are paying attention to in their securities analysis. How do you think this fits into kind of ESG and overall analysis? Well, companies today um, are all striving to uh, prove their capabilities on diversity and inclusion, whether that's to ESG investors or whether that's to the workplace of today and the future. So this is a, this is a, a square-on ESG issue, and investors and asset owners really expect companies to provide the necessary information so we know how they're really doing. And let me relate this to financial returns. 
today, uh, the demographics of the country have really shifted and changed. We have a much larger black population, a much larger Hispanic population, and educational attainment across the board in, in minority groups is going up. So we want companies to be able to draw from a broad labor pool. We want companies to be able to achieve the benefits of diversity and inclusion. From an ESG investor's perspective, though, we need data from companies to really assess how they're doing. And for companies to be able to be attractive workplaces for blacks, for Hispanics, for Asians, for all people of color and for everybody, they have to do a a good job helping to actually use their voice and solve these larger social issues. So it's a square on ESG issue. By the way, I think the ESG investing community needs to do a lot more to push companies to help solve these problems and provide us the data that we need to know what outcomes they're really achieving through these diversity and inclusion programs. John, uh, your position atop Calvert Research and Management, which was acquired by Eaton Vance and oversees nearly $20 billion with this focus on ESG, is admirable. And, and I would love to see some of the things that you're talking about come to fruition. What are you looking for with respect to corporations, steps that are meaningful toward ending racism? What can they actually do? Well, racism is tied up with inequality. And inequality in this country is deeply embedded and starts with inequality of opportunity at every level. So there are a number of things that companies are responsible for doing. As I said, you know, a, a first thing is disclosure, providing us the real information about the demographics of their workplace, who has what jobs, so that we know how well the company is doing there. Next creating um, attractive training and development programs for people of color and for um, people who have not had those opportunities in the educational system is critical. Being able to develop talent across the board is essential. Um, I think also working with the educational system in the communities where these companies draw from and helping to create um, equal opportunity in the educational system is also critical. And if you think about it, companies in America need to have a well-educated workforce across every demographic. So there are a number of things that companies need to do in order to sort of secure their place in the labor market and to help improve the workforce. Right. Uh, so it isn't just what they should do, it's what they need to do. Hey, John. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. John Stroer, uh, CEO of Calvert Research and Management with about $19 billion in assets on the management based in Bethesda, talking about racism and the role that corporations have, Lisa. And it kind of goes back to that ESG discussion as we think about uh, companies holistically and their impact on their environment. It also goes to some of the comments that we've heard out of the chief executives from everyone from Citigroup to J.P. Morgan to BlackRock in response to the protests, uh, really coming out in solidarity with the cause, certainly not the violence, but the cause. Amid everything that's been going on, Paul, we have not discussed one area of the market that was super hot a couple of years ago. 
And that is the crypto asset sector, and it has actually been on fire with Bitcoin rallying above $10,000 once again, and it has gained 40% more than that so far this year. Let's talk about digital gold with Meltem Demirs, Chief Strategy Officer with CoinShares Group, which has about $750 million in the digital space. Joining us from London, Meltem, thank you so much for being with us. Can you talk about Bitcoin and its use, or just the crypto asset sector in general, its use? as digital gold right now. Absolutely. And thanks for having me on. Uh, So it's really interesting to be living in this time right now. Uh, Bitcoin was a product of the last financial crisis. As some of us who've been in the space for a while uh, may know, the Bitcoin white paper was written in 2009 and the network launched in 2010. We're now 11 years into sort of the, the Bitcoin story. And we're seeing Bitcoin really come of age and mature in this financial crisis we're going through right now, particularly as we've seen over the last three months, a lot of risk, a lot of uncertainty, and investors really starting to look at the investing landscape and reevaluating how they want to be allocated going into the next year and beyond. So uh, the investment community obviously still has a lot of mixed views on Bitcoin. Some investment firms and investment managers have made big strides into the sector and are offering products and services to their clients. We're one example. We come from the commodity space as a team, but have been in the digital asset space for the last seven years now. Other firms, uh, most notably Goldman's wealth management team, have been less than hot on crypto assets. But one thing is sure, every investor is talking about Bitcoin, getting smart on crypto assets and starting to develop a perspective and really trying to figure out where Bitcoin might fit into their portfolio going forward. So it's an exciting time. Uh, It's been a really wild time. And we're really excited about intelligent conversation we see developing around Bitcoin, digital assets, and this technology more broadly. So Meltem, you mentioned the Goldman report. I remember when that came out, it caused some waves here. Summarize what Goldman was saying there and whether kind of if you agree or disagree with them. Absolutely. So it's important to know um, the report was issued by one of Goldman's uh, chief investment officers who has been an analyst of of a lot of different trends in the investing space. Um, And I think it was an interesting summary because it really used what's happening in macro markets, what's happening in gold as a way to frame why they felt Bitcoin was not a great investment, um, not a great long term value investment for investors. The way they described Bitcoin, which I think was an interesting characterization, they talked a lot about um, issues pertaining to money laundering. And as we know, Goldman has itself been dealing with a number of issues related to money laundering following the fallout of the 1MDB scandal. And the other aspect that was interesting is in this report, they not only mentioned that they felt Bitcoin was really just purely speculative and not really a fundamental value investment, they also made a a similar assessment of gold where they stated they did not feel that gold was a significant investment opportunity for investors. And as we look at what's happened to both, both the price of gold and the price of Bitcoin, I think here is an interesting instance where the market certainly 
is indicating it's not in agreement with that particular assessment. But Although again, Mel- well, Melton, know, though, to be fair, though, I think they're not alone in saying that, right? They're especially, I mean, I don't leave gold aside, but when it comes to crypto assets, Goldman Sachs uh, certainly has plenty of company in saying it's a speculative asset, considering the fact that people are not using it the way that they would another currency. What's the counter argument to why this has staying power in a way that goes beyond what some people are saying? I think there have been a lot of um, great rebuttals written by the industry that use a great set of data. I think there's a lot of evidence to the contrary, and we at CoinShare spend a lot of time surfacing that data and sharing it with our investors, our clients in the market. But I think there are a few key trends here. Um, Bitcoin is being used, and the way it's being used by people is being used as a hedge against inflation and as a long-term store of value. There are more people than ever that hold Bitcoin in their investment accounts, whether that's through a structured product like our XBT provider product or the Grayscale GBTC product here in the U.S. There are a lot of uh, Bitcoin wallets that have been created and that number continues to increase. The Bitcoin that's held in those wallets is staying dormant, meaning people aren't speculating on it, but they're really holding it. And then most importantly, we've seen just a tremendous number of inflows into Bitcoin over the last two months alone. One interesting fact, um, over the last two months, the demand for Bitcoin has outpaced its supply. Uh, So as you know, Bitcoin has a daily production uh, of new Bitcoins through an activity called mining. And in the last two months alone, the amount of investor demand for Bitcoin through things like Square's Cash App, Grayscale's GBTC products, and our XPT provider products, which is an exchange-traded product, there has been 150% demand for Bitcoin that exceeds the supply being produced, which to me, again, is a very bullish indicator. We're also seeing right. investors on the trading side taking a lot of interest. Uh, the CME Bitcoin futures contract broke all-time highs in the last month in terms of outstanding open interest on yep. the platform. And at the end of May, we saw one day where we had over a billion dollars of traded volume, which is an all-time high for that particular product. Meltem, thank you so much for joining us. Meltem Demirs, she's a chief strategy officer for CoinShares Group with $750 million in in the digital space based in London, giving us the latest on Bitcoin, which is rallying, uh, as Lisa uh, mentioned earlier, and all things in the crypto space, trying to get greater credibility in financial markets. It looks like they're having some success looking at the price of Bitcoin. Busy, busy morning here. We're taking a look here at an interesting story that uh, we are seeing from Bloomberg Business Week about private equity firms. They've been really big investors in the hospital business, and they've also been beneficiaries of some of the bailout money. David Kozinski, uh, Bloomberg Business Week reporter, joins us. David, thanks so much for joining you know us. I think he's uh, getting uh, oh, okay. up right now, but it really is an interesting focal point because private equity was sort of carved out of a lot of the programs passed by the federal government with them saying that they do not want these firms to be beneficiaries, and yet they have been such huge investors in the healthcare industry and hospitals in particular that there's been an extra emphasis, Paul, on, on, on how to parse out the healthcare considerations with the efforts on the part of lawmakers and others to keep money away from private equity. Yeah, so let's welcome David and uh, David Kozianuski, Bloomberg Business Week reporter. David, thanks so much for joining us here. Lisa and I were just talking about uh, your story here, uh, private equity uh, really investing in the hospital business, and they've received 
some bailout money. Give us a sense of kind of the scope and, and scale of this. Well, well, the scope is still being, uh, we're still kind of digging through the numbers. Um, you know, there was concern in the administration and among some lawmakers about private equity not getting bailout money and tried to target that money toward the needier um, healthcare companies. However, we found there's this tranche of loans. It was $100 billion in uh, interest-free loans that HHS um, decided to give out uh, in late March and early April. And uh, while none of it would get, went directly to private equity companies, um, the portfolio medical care companies they owned got more than $1.5 billion. So can you walk us through how they managed to get this, where the money went, uh, especially given some of the sentiment that you talked about trying to keep money away from p- uh, private equity-backed firms? Well, uh, all the big boys got it. You know, Apollo Global, uh, KKR, um, Cerebrus, uh, you know, those comp- those um, private equity firms have been buying huge stakes in medical care companies and in physician staffing companies over the past few years. Um, and it was easy for them to get it. Um, you know, HHS, I interviewed Seema Verma, who is the administrator of CMS, which is the eighth, the health and human services department that, that administered the loans. And she said they didn't ask who the, who, uh, the ultimate owners are. Anyone who wanted money and said, hey, we're going to be losing um, we're going to be losing uh, some income because of the elective surgery being banned during the COVID crisis. You just put an application and the feds would send them, um, you know, uh, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars to the subsidiaries of the private equity firms. David, I'm curious, there has been an emphasis by private equity firms to take stakes in hospitals that provide lucrative uh, lucrative operations, such as the elective procedures that have been put on halt by the pandemic. Has this been one of the main sources of hurt at a time when hospitals are there at the very epicenter of treating and caring for a lot of the people out there who are struggling with the effects of COVID? Yeah, you know, elective surgery is a profit center for every, uh, you know, for most medical providers. Um, you know, but what's interesting about this is that, you know, it also hurts uh, some of the safety net hospitals, you know, the ones who, who deal with, you know, who don't have the billions of dollars in cash reserve that Apollo does or that KKR does. Um, so some of these safety net hospitals actually were unable to apply because the money was uh, gone. So many of the, so many of the big um, for-profit um, hospital companies, um, the corporate owns and the, and the private equities got in there, got all the money, and the struggling uh, providers weren't able to get money in time. So um, it, it is a problem, and unfortunately, HHS uh, didn't do much to target the money towards those who needed it the most. So how have they done just overall in the hospital business of private equity firms? You, you know, um, I think they're, they've in the past 10 years, they've made a lot of money. I think in the last year or so, there's been some problem with KKR and Blackstone because they're under fire for the surprise billing scandal um, right. or, or surprise billing issue where uh, they staff um, network, in-network emergency rooms and surgical centers with out-of-staff, uh, out-of-network doctors. So if you go and get a surgery, you may think you're covered for the room, but you'll later get a surprise bill for you know, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars from the surgeon who was out of network. There's been such a public outcry about that that Congress has been pushing to to ban it. And uh, KKR and Blackstone, who are the two biggest um, 
uh, companies, they, they, they own Team Health and Envision, which are the companies which are at the center of this. They've spent millions of dollars trying to fight that off. Um, they have been struggling because there is a sense that the public outcry is going to, is going to um, lead to a restriction on that. But overall, they've made uh, um, it's been a hugely profitable sector for private equity. We're speaking with David Kochineski, a reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek. And David, just sort of tie this all together. Why is there so much opposition to private equity among hospital ownerships? I'm just trying to figure out whether they have acted worse than any other hospital uh, operator or investor, given the fact that these issues have been considered endemic throughout the entire industry. Well, I, I think it's hard to paint things with a broad brush. Um, but I do think if you look at the uh, actions of the individual companies, some of them have been at the forefront of the biggest um, and what are considered the most predatory um, actions like the like the surprise billing uh, situation. Um, we also mentioned Cerebrus, which owns which got uh, tens of millions of dollars in um, low interest loans. You know, they have bought uh, there's a hospital in eastern Pennsylvania that that they were, have been trying to sell. And in the middle of the COVID crisis, they threatened to close it down unless they were given uh, millions of dollars from the government of Pennsylvania. Um, so there is an there is a sense that while you know the the healthcare uh, uh, system in the U.S. has been um, you know been uh, costs have risen above the cost of inflation for years, that private equity has in some instances used more um, hard hardball tactics in terms of billing and in terms of suing uh, low-income people who can't pay the bills. Yeah. David Kochineski, thank you so much for being with us, reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek, talking about a story about private equity's involvement with the hospital system and the receiving of some of the bailout money that the U.S. has provided, even though there was a whole effort to have private equity firms not benefit from that. But Paul, really highlighting one of the key flashpoints heading into the election and beyond, which is the rise of private equity, the rise of the alternative investment community, where in some ways the lending, the the risk, the shadow banking system has expanded as the traditional investment banks continue to pull back in terms of size and risk taking. So a lot of questions going forward about how that will be translated into policy as well as some, uh, some of the political backdrop. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.